Welcome to Sugar Nutmeg. I'm Ruth Perriningrum. And I'm Alexandra Komala. In this episode, we talk to Mariam Lee, who shot to fame when her decision to take off her hijab as an adult stirred controversy in Muslim-majority Malaysia. Lesser known to the masses, however, Mariam has always been a developmentalist with a deep understanding of history and anthropology of the cultural and economic shifts in Nusantara. We unpack the different layers of liberalism and the intricacies and complexities of ethnicity and religion beyond national identity. You will hear the terms Bumi Putra and Pribumi, loaded terms which do not have a direct English translation and which carry a different meaning for different people. Mariam tells us about her journey going from notoriously conservative university to how she became the rebel that she is. We share reflections on spirituality, black magic, ghost stories, and of course, we clarify the whole competition between Indonesia and Malaysia. I am a program manager based in Malaysia. I am a program manager for multiple non-profit organizations, and currently I'm the general manager for Pusat Sejarah Rakyat. So Pusat Sejarah Rakyat is, um, is a place where we archive like historical documents of uh, Malaya, Malaysia, sorry, Malaysia and Singapore. And sometimes these documents uh, go against the official history. Also working as program manager for other uh, organizations as well, including the uh, an international organization called the IO Foundation, where we work on uh, the application of technology in human rights. So I've been in human rights for about 10 years now, since I was in university, and my first political activism was to open up uh, my university, which was a Malay Bumiputra only university, to the non Bumiputras in the country. And I'm actually still still fighting for that until today. I feel like even current generation of UITM goers um, don't really know our uh, legacy. We have a quite a rebellious legacy in UITM, except that it was very underground. So student movements, feminist rights movements, um, political activism in general, that's what I've been doing yeah, in Malaysia. So, so you said that UITM is uh, a university that normally is re- rebellious, is a rebellious university? Well, <laughs> okay, so because of the nature, yeah, there's a, a little bit of history here. UITM was previously ITM alone, uh, Institute Technology Imara, uh, where they were founded in order to help the poorest section of community at the time, which was the Malays. And because you know the the government at uh, at the time was led by AMNO, the United Malays National Organization, so they explicitly championed for Malay rights and Malay welfare. So a university or like an higher uh, educational institute specifically for the Malays was something that was something that of their creation, so that they can fulfill that promise of looking after the Malays, right? But the thing is, though, it was intended as a temporary measure. Once we have the Malays lifted up socially and economically, we are supposed to open up those, you, you know, those privileges also to non-Bumiputras and non-Malays. That's just the characteristic of Malaysian politics since our independence, because 
we still we still categorize ourselves based on three main categories of races, Malays, Chinese, and Indians, when in fact, our heritage and our ethnicities go way beyond that. We are, you know, we are, we are not just Melayu, we are also Jawa, Minang, and Bugis, and lots of other uh, places within Nusantara, and not just those who, that came from China and India. Right. And even within the so-called categories of Chinese and Indian, there are the Hakka, the Cantonese, the Teochews. There are so many other ethnicities. You know, they're not just Indian. So a lot of people get confused. Uh, you know, sometimes when you know how when you 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 refer to Chinese people, and they're like, "Are you talking about Chinese Chinese or like Malaysian Chinese?" Mm. <laughs> yeah. Are you talking about Indian Indian or like Malaysian Indian, which which is actually very funny. Right, because yeah. Indian is a nationality, not an ethnicity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's the crisis of identity in Malaysia uh, that we've struggled with since independence. So, do the Indians refer to themselves as Indians as well, or um, the Chinese refer to themselves as just Chinese as well, or do they make the distinction? Yeah, yeah. Um. It depends on where you are, I suppose. I mean, in Malaysia, you kind of, I mean, it's very normal for you to kind of make that distinction even without being asked. Like, you just make that, oh, I'm, I'm Chinese Malaysian. You just say it and you just hear people say it, even though you don't ask what you are. But of course, when a Malaysian is overseas, they would just say that they're Malaysian. Mm, right? they, don't have yeah. to, they don't have to explain that they are Chinese Malaysian. <laughs> Yeah, what about what about a Japanese Malaysian? Do they have that urge to explain themselves too? Or they just say I'm like Javanese who grew up in America? I mean, I guess it will come up in a conversation, but mm-hmm. we all we all understood one thing is that Malay is a political construct. So in the constitution, you have the definition of being Malay, like being to speak Malay, to be culturally Malay, to wear Malay clothes. Mm. So Technically, even if you're not ethnically Malay, if you fulfill all those criteria, you are Malay politically. And also in the constitution, it says that Malay has to be Muslim. So you cannot have a non-Muslim Malay in Malaysia. That's what it is. So I'm interested, since you work for Pusat Sejarah Rakyat, which documents history, are you able to, or... Is Pusat Sejarah Rakyat able to pinpoint the the year or the date in which all Malays are Muslim? Like, like, is yeah, when was this first? I don't think we have that information because most of our historical archives are oral histories. So we focus on collecting oral histories. We, we believe in history from below, right? Sejarah dari bawah. Then, and that means history from the perspective of ordinary people, not the perspective of figures or apa? I mean, the Malay word is toko. Mm. I don't know what the um, English word for it is. You know? I think figures and, are correct, yeah. Yeah, so we don't focus on the elites. We focus on collecting, like, let's say there's a historical event, uh, May 13 riots in 1969, for example, but not from the perspective of people in power, but from people who are just ordinary right yet on the street. 
So to tell exactly when, do we have a memory of Malays being non-Muslim? I've not encountered that. Unless we're talking about ancient texts, manuscripts, artifacts where there were evidence that Malays or at least the people of this land that they call the Tanah Melayu were not Muslims and mm-hmm. that was probably like the days before Islam came to the, to the region but in terms of our like nationalist history with a memory of where Malays were non-Muslims is not available I think yeah we, we don't remember a time when the Malays were not Muslims <laughs> But I mean, during the colonization, they might as well like pass down their like uh, the religion during that time, right? I mean, they are definitely Malay Christians. Uh-huh. They just can't come out. Right. So yeah. I'm, I think I'm just curious, like when they handed the the independence the- agreement, yeah, what people's perspective, who are the the non-Muslim at that time, when they agree that for the the identity of the country is oh yeah um. Definitely Sabah Sarawak fought very hard for the autonomy of their religious uh, governance. Unfortunately, I don't know much about Sabah Sarawak politics to say. Uh, but in order to agree to the Malaysia agreement, they did explicitly say that do not interfere with our religious affairs. Like the federal Semenanjung, the, the peninsula, the Malaysia peninsula, cannot interfere with the religious affairs of Borneo, Malaysia. So there's also that that distinction being made and part of the agreement in the Malaysia strategic agreement. And okay, and maybe Brunei did not. So Brunei was supposed to be in Malaysia and then Brunei withdrew at the last minute. And then Singapore left in 1965. Also apparently because of this tension where they feel like they don't have freedom to practice their religious beliefs, especially the indigenous religious beliefs. But Sabah Sarawak people are still Bumi Putra, even though they're non-Malay. So, <laughs> so they get that special, what do you call They They get that special position in the Malaysia agreement. It's so all over the place, but not as complicated in, in, as Indonesia, I'm sure. When um, you say that there are Christians or Catholics Bumiputra or Mal- Christian or Catholic Malays, but they just can't come out. So that means <laughs> they practice it, but then they they have to put Islam in their ID cards. Well, Islam is on our ID card. Definitely, our religion is on the ID card. But I'm not sure how it works exactly with non-Muslim Malays. Yeah, because it's not my area of reading, so I don't know. Uh, specifically, but I do know that it is actually possible legally to change your religion. It's just very, 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 very difficult. Mm. Yeah, mm. technically it is possible, but they will ask you to go through like counseling to 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 figure out if you are you know if you are in the right mental state, even because you want to change your religion, right? But converting to Islam is very is easy. easy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very. It's, it's a breeze, you know. You don't. Yeah, there's no hurdle for that at all. But like, yeah, it's like this hotel California song, right? You can get in, you can check out. One of the most mind-blowing things for me was uh, when you told me that, like, basically, there's no such thing as Malay, but non-Muslim. 
um, because in Indonesia, there are a lot of like Javanese or like the Bumi Putra equivalent is Pribumi and there's a lot of Pribumi who are like Catholic or Christian. Yeah, so that's kind of mind blowing for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's actually quite um, ridiculous to think about because in our folklores, in our like fairy tales, but not fairy tales. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think folk tales. Folk tales, right? Yeah. It's, it's funny because in our folk tales, we talk a lot about rebellion against authority. For example, we have this character called Lebai Malang. Lebai means religious authority. I think someone who studies religion, like an imam. And then you have, his name is Malang. Someone very unfortunate. Someone that does not have good fortune. And he's always in trouble. He always gets in trouble with the authorities. It's a way to undermine the not you know not just the, the authority at the time of course was the sultan, and then um, you have the agamawan you know the people who take care of religious affairs, and it, we have lots of stories on how these you know ordinary people ordinary peasants go against the feudal elites, and yet we are still you know we are still very careful about not offending people in power even though we have that that oral legacy, maybe because it's not really written, it's orally transmitted. Uh, so it wasn't really like, like a concrete thing. Like the like the history of uh, Chek Siti Wang Kembang, the royal ruler of Kelantan in the 17th century, who, who was a very devout Muslim, right? But she wasn't wearing any hijab, and she wasn't covering her chest. You know, the, the traditional kemban, that people, that's how women used to be wearing, right? We don't cover our chest above and we don't cover our hair but it is it's hard to reconcile with our today's society that that this woman was a muslim and a devout muslim and a ruler of a country um, yeah. yeah and i remember i think you told us that the people tried to change her appearance now in paintings or pictures <laughs> So that people don't see her because we need to cover up her outright. I mean, it's very similar with the hero from Aceh, the, the very famous one, the female hero. She, yeah, she yeah. didn't wear any hijab. Yeah, in fact, we were warriors and the ministers of, of Chet Siti Wang Kemang were all women. And her bodyguards were women. Uh, she always has a caress in her belt. She rides horses and you know things like that like like what a warrior queen would do you know but today the idea of a warrior queen or like um, i guess the equivalent of today would be like ministers or prime minister or female prime minister is a is a concept that is so alien and in fact a concept that is feared because you fear of the outcome of, of of women leading the country if a king has a daughter would she be uh, a sultan one day or are you guys like completely against that okay honestly i don't know because this requires protocol right as far as i know no the answer is no yeah. <laughs> i mean we're having the same problem in uh Jogja right now but yeah i'm just curious about that yeah yeah as far as i know no princess has ever become sultan yeah yeah not in our modern history as in malaysia yeah uh because pre-malaysia we had we already have like nine sultans and to, yeah because of that we have to preserve all the nine sultans until today 
Actually, I'm curious, how did the nine sultans come about from the British colonization to the rise of nine sultans? How did that come uh, The sultans have, have been there since pre-colonial era. And so when the British came in, they just made a deal with the sultans to kind of administer parts of the land. And they become resident officials, like colonial residents of the Malay Strait. They don't call themselves colony. It's not, it's not a colony. They're friends of the kings. Yeah, you know, they're, they're there as the British, uh, the British East India Company. So they run themselves as, you know, as, as mercantiles, as traders. And the proposition that they made with the kings were business, business dealings, right? In order to, to collect profits from the land. And whatever that, that is mined from our lands were taken back to Britain or whatever profits that are mined from here. We'll take it back to Britain and we funded a lot of wars right because the British needed money to fund their wars I mean of course not voluntarily we were colonized <laughs> so so they, they were there right? for example Malacca used to have a sultan now not anymore because by the time that we were gaining our independence the Malacca sultan ran away uh, because of whatever event yeah, yeah. <laughs> on. I'm, I'm not really sure to be honest with you, uh, because specific histories of the land were not really taught to us. Like, mm. we have to go out of our way. In, like, the national textbooks and stuff, is that the story that's told in textbooks, that these sultans and monarchies worked with the colonizers? It was actually told in a manner that as if the sultans were just making business deals. So it wasn't really like a wrong thing to do. Like at that time, it was not really considered colonization. At that time, it was considered trade. It was considered um, foreign intellectual exchange of sort, technological exchange. I mean, the fact that we don't feel colonized, it bugs me as well. It was such a, like I was just reading memoirs, right, of, of people who were around at the time that we gained independence and they were talking about their presence of colonial officers as if it was such a, like a lovely affair. Like they attend all these colonial officers' parties. You know how like today you attend embassy events and you know, you get, you get treated like an ambassador and you, your family getting access to people who administer the country. That tends to, to make people forget I suppose, that colonization in any form, even in its most pleasurable form, in the most mm-hmm. beneficial to certain people, certain groups of people, um, is still colonization. So I guess, in fact, I've even come across people describing this as a benign form of colonization. So like, like you can't even compute that, right? Like how can you put the word benign and colonization in the same sentence? But- was this person like comparing the idea of colonization in Malaysia and in Indonesia, for instance? Because that's like our history was like, you know, we struggled uh, for the independence. No, no, no. It was more as like an, I guess indirectly, they do feel like it does sound sounds like adoration, adoration for the British administration and also like a form like gratefulness for the British administration for giving us infrastructure without ever asking that 
we could have come up with those infrastructures even without colonization. Mm. So when we look at the our current infrastructures we have today, a lot of the train rails, for example, were still the rails that were from the British era. So even from a public infrastructure point of view, we are still constructing things based on colonial legacy. So if our physical infrastructures are still colonial, what about our mental infrastructure? The way we think is also colonial. So we believe that Malays are inherently lazy, you know, things like that, you know, all these colonial beliefs to put us in, in our place is still ingrained, you know, that white people know best, all those kind of things, yeah. you know, you need to look to the West. Hmm. But I think that's true because like there are people in Indonesia who might say like, oh, I wish Indonesia was colonized by the British instead of the like oh. Dutch. Yeah, it's like <laughs> there's a lot of that. Yeah, people like around my parents' age and like my grandma's grandpa's. I think they said like because the British educate their subjugated people. I think that's their argument. Because because all of the British colonies end up speaking English, whereas in Indonesia, the Indonesians don't end up like nobody knows how to speak Dutch. And also, like, I think another thing is that all of the British colonies are part of this, uh, what do you call it, like Commonwealth countries. countries. And so they don't need to apply for visas and things like that to travel all over the world. Whereas, like, for Indonesians, it's so hard with an Indonesian passport. So I think that's why there's a lot of, like, jealousy from Indonesia of, you know, Malaysia being colonized by, Singapore and Malaysia being colonized by the Brits. Yeah, but you, the, the whole idea of sovereignty is for you to make your own rules. So why then do we feel victimized by the current situation and then blame it on ourselves? Yeah. yeah. We, don't, we don't even blame the British for this or the Dutch for this, for the mess that they put us in. Yeah, there was a time I think I, I uh, there was a bunch of tourists that I came I, that I came into contact with and one of them happened to be of Indonesian descent and she was telling me she she's Dutch by the way um and she was telling me this this thing this uh story about her grandparents having to move to the Netherlands because of the political persecution of the elite in Indonesia so they had to run away. So, because they had the money, I mean, at the, in, in Indonesia, of course, they, are, they were rich. They were part of the elite. But in the Netherlands, they are, they had to work. <laughs> so, she, she was telling me about how her grandmother had to complain about working in the Netherlands, but in Indonesia, or in Java, I mean, at that time, Indonesia wasn't even a country yet, right? They were... <laughs> They were elite, like they were, they were, they were taken care of. They had maids, they had, they had cleaners, they had things like that. So now that they come back, she comes back and she, she wants to kind of explore her, her Javanese roots that she doesn't know much about. She was like, she resented her grandparents for leaving in Indonesia because in the Netherlands, she's just a normal working class. <laughs> and I'm like... How could you say that? <laughs> I mean, of course, I didn't say that yeah. to her. But like, yeah. like, your grandparents made a very difficult choice to leave. It was a matter of life and death. So if the consequence of that is you stepping down the social ladder, 
then there's no way you could judge that honestly and then her friends made like some joke about oh thank god the dutch colonized you guys huh and i'm like what the fuck <laughs> very insensitive like I was, and this was in kl by the way this wasn't even in this was set in kl i'm like are you kidding me wait her her friends said to her thank god that the dutch colonized you i guess she was trying to crack a joke but it wasn't funny like it was so out of place but i think without the dutch i don't think there will be indonesian now yeah so without colonizations all these country wouldn't even exist right yeah. it existed out of our independence from all these people yeah the concept of nation state even a result of colonization and for example in certain states up north in malaysia like kelantan bordering patani in thailand patani is actually socially and linguistically closer to Kelantan and Thailand. Like whenever Kelantan is in danger, for example, but like the Patani people will come and help first. Like their their aid and assistance would arrive before anyone else. But they are two different countries technically. So this very imaginary border that we have that we call countries is the result of that lack of understanding of colonial officers in mapping out our land. So when they mapped out our boundaries they just mapped it out based on their understanding of what Asia is instead mm-hmm. of what we call Asia, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. They decide what is West, they decide what is East, they decide what is Middle East because everything is from their perspective, from the West perspective. They call the our side of the world the Orient. When the Orient, you know, largely referring, of course, to the Chinese. It was funny because I was in a taxi And then the the taxi driver asked me like where I'm from, and I said Indonesia, and he was like, oh Chinese, and I was like, nope, no, no, this <laughs> is a completely different country. But yeah, I think most of people still don't don't know the geographical perspective of like the whole Asia, Asia. Yeah, yeah. Or like sometimes I tell people I'm from Indonesia, and they're like, oh where, like Thailand? Exactly. Like we know so much about them, but they know very little about us. Yeah. So I'm actually curious like in Indonesia the nationalistic pride and nationalism um and all of these nationalists uh like I guess nationalism is built on the fact that there was a struggle for independence from the Dutch. And then if that doesn't exist in Malaysia and yet there's so much nationalism in Malaysia, how was that built? Well, I would say that our national identity is still in the making actually because as every day you know there are a large part of society who are especially the non-muslims and anomalies who don't feel a sense of belonging because they are always ostracized as not being Malaysian enough and apparently being Malaysian is you know speaking fluent Malay and you know looking and thinking a certain way aka thinking Malayla, essentially. And that has kind of sowed a sense of like discontent, especially with the double standards between Malay, Umiputra, and the non-Malay and non-Umiputra. And part of, a big part of that reason is because when we achieved independence, we were still Persekutuan Tanah Melayu, the Federation of Malay States. And the name Malaya and the name Malaysia were not formulated at the same time. Malaysia only came after uh, with the inclusion of Sabah, Sarawak and Brunei. 
So that sense of nationalism, I feel like it's not, I don't know, I would even challenge it. Do, do Malaysians even have a sense of uh, nationalism for their country? In a sense of expressing it in the way that the ruling elites want it expressed. But what would you call the 2018 protest? Is that type of like nationalist movement or is it just against the unjust system? It was largely against corruption. It was not really like a Malaysia for Malaysia kind of thing. I mean, no doubt, we love our country. Okay, Malaysians love their country. But the way that we express our nationalism, I guess, it, it shouldn't be just down to what the constitution says of what a Malaysian is. Even, like, say, for example, the fact that uh, non-Malays are still called pendatang, they are asked to go back to their home country, either India or China, when in fact their home country is here. And for a non-Malay to identify as an ethnicity and then they are Nusantara. You know, for example, they are Chinese and they are Nusantara. It's an alien concept to a lot of people here because it doesn't click the official narrative, the, the official image that the Nusantara people look a certain way and not Chinese or Indian. They, they identify more with India, India or, or China, China's image of what being Indian and China is rather than being ethnically and culturally Indian or Chinese and still be very much Nusantara. I'm not sure if I'm even <laughs> if I'm even making sense here. Yeah, I don't I don't think people, Malaysians do the things they do because of that Malaysian pride. Their the identity is always their ethnicity first rather than their nationality first, you know. Or at least here in Malaysia. When they're abroad, when Malaysians are overseas, they'll be like, oh, I'm Malaysian. But here, when you're in the country, you're like, I'm Chinese. <laughs> I'm Indian, you know, or I'm something, right? But not M- Malaysian. Like the identity is not Malaysian. I recently discovered this YouTube channel by a Chinese Malaysian girl who was studying in Jogja in Indonesia. And she says the biggest, biggest difference between Chinese Malaysians and Chinese Indonesians is that Chinese Indonesians will say, I'm Indonesian, whereas Chinese Malay will always say, I'm Chinese in Malaysia, um, but they would never actually say, I'm Malaysian, which is very interesting to me. Yeah, and, and, and I feel like those kind of conversations kind of invite a lot of shame. People here kind of shame people who talk like that, people who identify with their ethnicity first rather than nationality first. I don't know. I don't think that should be shamed because you can still be Malaysian and very much very culturally in tune to your, to your ethnic culture. You don't need to erase your cultural and social identity in order to be Malaysian. Malaysia as a country should be big enough to accommodate all of them. And, and people like me who think that, you know, who don't even believe much in the concept of nation or nation state would be a very small voice in the country or even in anywhere actually in the world. But that does not mean I won't defend it. Like I won't do my part as a citizen. Because it, 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 when, when you say that you have no sense of attachment to, to nation, to the concept of nation or to the concept of a country, it, the assumption is that you will not do what it takes to defend the country, which is not necessarily true. 
How do you build connection with the Malaysian roots? If I mean, in the path of thinking that, because you said it's we don't need to shame these people who said like, oh, I'm Indian first and then Malaysian. Uh, or even you when you said you don't believe in nation or borders. But when you said you will defend it anyway, where do you get that connection if you don't believe in nationality or like nation on borders? I mean, my, I would say that my personal allegiance is to humanity. So whatever that, that because I am enjoying a lot of privileges, social privileges, because I am a citizen. So I would want citizenship for people who may not have been from here to begin with. I would say that the direction that Malaysians should explore is to remember our cosmopolitan history. The Nusantara has always been a cosmopolitan where everybody is from somewhere else. <laughs> it's actually common. It's very typical. The fact that you are um, of mixed heritage of mixed ancestry is typical for Southeast Asians. It's typical for people of Nusantara. And we need to remember that and not and not like restrict, you know, restrict who can come into the country. Now we, we don't allow, you know, uh, refugees or people of certain uh, different nationalities to achieve, to get citizenship. There is a huge problem of statelessness. But can Israeli um, come to Malaysia? Yeah, no. they can. They can. I've seen them. Oh, okay. Because I, <laughs> I, mean, I think I remember Alexander mentioned that they're not allowed to come Israel. to Indonesia. Like our passport, we cannot go to Israel. No, Malaysians oh, okay. can go to Israel, but not the other way around. And Indonesia and Israel still can travel. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so... Yeah, so with this issue of statelessness and things like that, the rhetoric is that we cannot give them citizenship because they're not from here. But the question we should be asking, who is from here except for the indigenous people? The only people who have the most claim on ownership of the land would be the indigenous people. And yet they are not the people in power. So us versus them, uh, rhetoric is a very powerful tool to secure power in Malaysia. That's why you, the racism is very high because it serves the purpose of dividing people based on race. It serves a political purpose. It's very beneficial. So they want to keep that. They want. They actually want to keep racism alive and not, not dismantle it. Because otherwise, then the actual people who will be in power are not them, not the Malays. Our current prime minister is of Javanese descent. Yeah, his name is very Javanese. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about politics, I'm, I just want to ask like a, a short question. Like, how is your experience like going through this past two years? Because even me following it, the, the political situation, it was just like, what is going on here with the, the prime minister mm-hmm. coming in and out, in and out? And it was like, I honestly don't no, understand. No, I, eventful as politics in Malaysia is and it's not dire and I know a lot of people will disagree with me actually but like honestly compared to the shitstorm of politics or you know even the US for example it's mild or even compared to Indonesia 
it's mild. So Malaysia wants to be a middle income nation. And in the process of us becoming more and more middle class, a lot of people found democracy to be more appealing. So they want more and more people want to be a part of the democratic process. So there is a dream, there is an aspiration to be part of the decision-making process of the country. So as we have more and more people who want those things, even the slightest issue would be championed, which is a great thing, right? That's what a democracy should be. It should be thriving, it should be lively, it should be filled with people who are enthusiastic about change. So that that's what I would say the, the past decade has been for Malaysian politics new people, new faces into the political process, into the democratic process, because of our aspiration to be more and more middle class. But your old prime minister came back for a little bit. <laughs> exactly. Like As much as we want the country to move forward with, with fresh, younger talents, we are still dependent on those old generation of politicians to, to get things done because of the way that they have structured it. Mahade was the one who amended the uh, University Act to stifle, to not allow students to be involved in politics on campus. That was not the case before he did that. That was in 1974. So for, for over 40, 50 years, students, university students, Mahasiswa, these are the hope of the nation. They are not allowed to be involved in politics. So what happens to their imagination of politics? Obviously, it gets stifled as well. And we have no choice but to bring him back into power. <laughs> because literally, in our imagination, in our political imagination, we cannot imagine a Malaysia without Mahathir. It has been constructed as such. So younger and, and more angrier, <laughs> I suppose, uh, generation of Malaysians are saying, no, you know, we, ha- we can do more than this. We can and we should, and that comes with its own trials, you know, because everybody will look at you like, like you're crazy. How can you have a country without it? Do you think, do you think that's why um, there aren't as many protests or demonstrations where young people protest the, um, the laws and policies and things like that? Because I think about you know, I'm like, oh, why is my comparison only with Indonesia? But like in Indonesia, technically, if there were actual laws that are written on paper about how the pribumi have the upper hand, um, I think people would protest, even though like, like in practice, of course, that is the, the reality. But then it's not explicitly written down on paper. And I wonder like, if because of that law um, that made students and young people very complicit and complacent and just, you know, accepting of whatever laws and policies are made to govern the people. It's fear, it's largely fear because you are threatened with all sorts of disciplinary action because of that act. If you get anywhere near political activism on campus, you will be facing penalties for your studies. And because we are so dependent on on this degree, and I myself coming from a working class family, I was, I'm the first to go to university. So it's a lot at stake for people like me. So students like me are like the majority. It's a lot at stake. 
to even be sent to a university because that four years that you're not earning income for your family is what could make or break your family. As soon as you finish school, you are the sole breadwinner. So when there is that kind of severity of consequence for joining politics, of course you would stay away from it. And students will stay away from it. And even after graduation, they will stay away from being political. When in fact, the water you drink is political, right? There's nothing not political in your life at all. But we have managed to desensitize our young people so much that to undo that kind of damage... It takes a long time. takes a long time. And also, the people who have been filling up the vacuum of leadership, right? So when you don't have that political leadership to envision progressive Malaysia, for example, like a no such thing as non-Bumiputra, for example. That is like a vision. And that goes against status quo. So people will not be pushing for those things, you see. And the leadership for those things have now been shifted to the NGOs. And NGOs, as independent as they are from the government, they still rely on funding to survive. And funding only comes if there is trouble. If there is, I mean, you can't sell weapons if there is no war. So if there is no problem of structural racism in Malaysia, how do you ask for funding in order to tackle racism in Malaysia, for example? Mm. So you come up with programs like awareness programs, blah, 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 all these mediocre programs, but not actually tackling the issue at the core. Mm. that would actually solve the trouble, the problem once and for all. So uh, so there's a lot of things going on here, including electoralism, right? Because everybody wants to win the election. They will do anything to win the election, including pandering to the voter base, who are largely Malay, Muslim, Bumiputra, who want to feel safe. Safe from what? Aren't Bumiputra the majority? Yeah, well, uh, they are being fed this, this uh, narrative that if, if AMNO is no longer in power, for example, the Malay rights would be threatened, would be jeopardized. So in order to keep the Malay rights and Malay welfare preserved, you need to keep voting us into power. So it's fear, a lot of this, this repression, repressing Malaysians from actually expressing who they are, repressing Malaysians from questioning the status quo. is a deliberate, systemic program from the state. I have, so I have two you, questions. Okay. Did, did you want to ask your question? No, I'm just wondering because you use an uh, example uh, of yourself as like a middle income family, but was there any like an underground movement from the students who were from like the elite families or something who tried to, I don't know, rebel the system? Yeah, yeah, there are. Um, but as the name suggests, they're underground. So not really known. When I was in UITM, I was part of one, uh, and I could only talk about it after I graduate. Like the entire time during my university years, I could not tell people who I was and what role I played in these things. Um, but yes, they are. See, this is how we saw it. Institutions have failed us, right? Institutions of higher learning have failed us. Institutions of governance have failed us. Our students are in massive debts. They are minimum wage. I mean, at the time it was like 900 ringgit. But today, minimum wage is 1,100 1, ringgit. And it's ridiculously low for a university graduate. 
and by definition once you are once you even get to go to university you are already considered middle class and how can middle class be poor that is the question that we're asking because we are always constantly not we don't have enough to even like get a good life for ourselves we are always working uh but the thing is though are they big enough are, are these movements this underground movement even big enough to destabilize the status quo and unfortunately we were not big enough and leadership was also very weak because it takes a while right because you have killed all the progress of student activism with the university act by stifling student activism on campus so there is that disconnect there is that how do you call it like a block Okay, there is one generation, we lost one generation of intellectual activists or even grassroots activists to be transferred to, to my generation. And then the internet came <laughs> and then there is this new generation of internet activists, people who are, you know, pushing for advocacies online. And that's when you start seeing uh, political activism active again, including the kind of political shifts that we saw with the 2018 general election. Mm. All those things came into play because of internet. Like It was like revived. Because at the time when, when Mahathir was prime minister, we only had uh, newspaper and radio to inform us of the news. Not even TV? I mean, of course, we had TV. Yes, yes, yes. TV. <laughs> like, I was like, sorry, traditional media. We relied on traditional media, right? So the reach was not so uh, good. And also, the state controls all the media. As always, everywhere in the world. So my two questions are, if that kind of mindset is so nurtured, and radical thinking is so stifled how did you find your turning point have you know your viewpoints um that's my first question and also does malaysia have your version of ahok ahok was the indonesian ethnically chinese non-muslim politician does does malaysia have one as governor of jakarta yeah uh, governor or mayor? I forgot. Uh, governor. governor. Governor, right? Uh, yeah. Is he out of jail yet? Yeah. Yeah, he, he just out. got out. Okay. And then, and then he, he now works for an oil and gas company. You know, it's so funny because I actually went to UITM, which is known as the biggest university in Malaysia. Therefore, it's very, like, the government heavily, heavily indoctrinate us. In on campus, like every semester, we would have to go through some kind of a course in order to remind us, you know, of our position in this country, which is to obey and to, to not question things. And that is the kind of environment that I came from. Like people would just look at me and, and you know, after they get to know me and they'll be like, are you sure you're from UITM? <laughs> 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 what happened to you? Like literally that question I get a lot. Like what happened to you? But the thing is, because of that situation, you start to question things. Because you see that it's not right. You can, it's, it's just all around you. You just have to open your eyes, you know. Like literally I go to class and literally I, I have no non-Malay or non-Muslim friends. Of course I did. But my point is like 
in terms of ratio, in terms of scale, it's just ridiculous. As opposed to where you go to a private university and you see the diversity right on. There's like little diversity in UITM. And how do you say, if your worldview can be shaped by your surrounding, then I guess it really depends on you to create the surrounding you need in order to come out of that. So what I did was I, I read, I was reading a lot. And I was coincidentally also a literature major. So we read a lot of poems and Macbeth, uh, sorry, and, and Shakespeare. So reading all those plays, all those poems, all those you know novels, including George Orwell's 1984 and Animal Farm, mm. those kind of books uh, really opened people's minds, right? Not just me. It wasn't just me. It was also a lot of others. But, you know, we realize all this, honestly. To be honest, we have all these discussions, even though in secret, when we were on campus. But we realize that we cannot do anything without putting our necks on the line. Mm. So at the very last semester, uh, I was threatened to not finish, not graduate. I actually gave up on my activism for that semester in order for me to finish because otherwise I wouldn't be graduating that year or at all. So, so the fear was real, right? The culture of fear was real. We even had a word for these things that was going on, the kitaran pembodohan. You know, the cycle of stupidity where UITM having you know, haven't been there as long as it has been, they produce the next generation of Malay Bumiputra administrators and then their kids go to UITM and then they produce the next generation of Malay Bumiputra administrators and then their kids go to UITM. You know, it's like it's a cycle that just gets, you know, turning over and over. And we call it the cycle of stupidity because you are trained to obey. Point is, <laughs> sometimes people, you know, find their way in different ways. My way was being a busybody. I was at this speaker's corner. I was curious. That was my first ever political event, I guess, on campus. It was illegal, of course. It was an illegal speaker's corner and somebody was doing it and like, you know, it's, it's, it's university, man. And I remember the topic. The topic was, why do universities have gates? That's what the speaker was talking about. I forgot who was speaking, but the topic was like, because universities in Malaysia have gates, very, very heavily gated. And this person was asking why. If this is a public institution, it should be open. And that opened my mind. Like, huh, it's just simple questions. Why are we gated? Are we locking our students in or preventing other people from coming in or preventing us from going out? And then, of course, uh, 10 minutes later, the police bantuan arrived and <laughs> and the whole thing was disbanded. But those little acts of rebellion, those little, those gradual and little tiny, tiny acts of rebellion, you know, make the movement grow. Even though, even when we didn't succeed, I mean, structurally. But in terms of AHOP, um, do we have one? <laughs> because I'm thinking of the current circumstances, uh, of the circumstances that he was put in, right? Uh, I guess we do, but not in the public administration sense, but in, in the corporate sector. Uh, there's a recent case of uh, a big part of our economy is run by GLCs. GLCs stand for government-linked companies. That means they're essentially state-owned institutions. So 
our electric, our uh, water supply, our a lot of our key institutions are all state-owned. So to get appointed as a CEO of a GLC is a big deal. And it's usually positions in GLCs, because of their high salaries, they are offered to political cronies, you know, as a payment for supporting the politicians in financing elections, for example. That is, of course, corruption. And there was a, a young CEO who was employed for our Pomodala National. Um, like national funding? PNB. Hmm. Anyway, point is, he was removed from that position because he refused to give certain positions or whatever. To He refused to essentially to listen to the to the people in power. And I guess that's similar in Ahok's situation in the sense that, you know, he was basically not doing what he was told. Lah, kan? But not in a religious, cultural sense, you know, not yet. I guess we don't really have a hope in that sense. I'm sure we have people who rebel, definitely. Are, are there people who are ethnically Indian or ethnically Chinese who or non-Muslim who run for public office? Yeah, yeah. They are definitely. I mean, mostly as MPs, members of parliament. So in Malaysia, we do not elect a prime minister. We elect our members of parliament who will win the election and then their party of the members of the parliament will choose the prime minister. So we don't actually choose our prime minister so it's not actually a democracy not, not directly, per se. yeah it's not <laughs> <laughs> we, we our prime minister comes whoever is leading the coalition that mm. wins the election then they will become the prime minister so it's pretty much the same with the british like, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah westminster parliamentary democracy i said that we have a constitutional monarchy element if, even if you're non-malay non-doing putra who wants to run for the position of prime minister, you have to go through your party. Your party has to elect you as a prime minister candidate. And then the the people will vote the party. Yeah, and that's how you become prime minister. But I mean, naturally, as members of parliament, we have, we have non-Malays, non-Muslims running all the time. Uh, it's just that usually people who win um, elections are usually people from the constituents. So if the, if, you're, if the constituent is Malay, Muslim, majority, then usually you feel a candidate that would be palatable to that, to that candidate. So that's how, you, that's how you reinforce certain values that are you know, sometimes problematic. Like for example, if you are running in a Malay majority constituency, then if you are a female Muslim candidate who doesn't wear the hijab, that might be a problem, for example, because you would not win. The assumption is that you would not win. It really has to start. We are very dependent on parties. Like you have to, to be in politics, you have to be in, in, a, in a political party, which is, I think, something we need to break. Like we should not have to be in a party to be politically involved. Yeah, I mean, I that's hard because everywhere in the world, like in Indonesia, in the U.S., it's it's parties, parties, parties. It's very difficult to win as independence. So we found one of your tweets. Oh. And we would like, like you to explain it, like elaboration of what oh. you mean in this tweet. It says this one is like, dear God, you there? I need to take a request. Oh. Please spare me the shameness of a politician in activist clothing. 
and the embarrassment of being a liberal. What do you mean by that tweet? <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Where do I even start? There's a lot of layers in this. Yeah, tweet. that's why There's I was like, oh, this so, is okay. First of all, that tweet was aimed at Ambiga Sivarasan. Okay. Ambiga is a lawyer, a human rights lawyer, who is a very he is uh, one of the founders and also one of the leaders in the Bursay movement that campaigned very, very hard to get rid of uh, Amno and Barisa National because of the corruption. She's a figure, uh, she's, a, she's a public figure. She was the first person to say in 2016 when they named Mahadi as a prime minister candidate that there is no alternative to Mahadi. She was the person who who made that narrative stuck. That was in 2016, so I was a lot younger <laughs> then. And, but still, I remember being angry when I heard that, when she said that. I was like, how dare you? We have campaigned so hard and, and worked so hard to get rid of Mahadi, and you're telling us that there is no choice so all this while we've been looking for alternatives you were not sincere if your only imagination of politics is that then that's not much of an imagination at all <laughs> so you see this goes way back to 2016 she was also like i mean because of her reach because of her influence she was the reason why people were very divided about mahadi and the political situation at the time was just very tense because of that. But anyway, I don't think it was her fault or anything like that. My criticism of her is that, and she has never engaged with that. Like she never thought of questioning what she said and the impact of what she said on Malaysian politics. I get, I get, I get, I lost it lah in the tweet. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> Actually, she knows, she knows. We've never talked about it directly, like me and her, but she did disagree with my position because Mahadi was prime minister candidate. So I, I said that I would support the protest voting movement, Undi Rosa. So because if you don't give me a choice in this election, why should I vote? Because I don't like the choices that you're giving me. Giving me no choice is not a choice. Essentially, <laughs> essentially that was the message. But the the whole debate about being uh, politically liberal is a new debate in Malaysia of sorts in a sense that we're talking about political liberalism uh, so that means you are pro free free market you are very favorable towards free market capitalism free trade and things like that and basically doing everything you can to win the election that's like a distinct characteristic of liberal politicians Uh, but what exactly is your curiosity about it? Is it because of the... The whole thing. Okay. Just this whole thing. Really? But yeah, so so the perspective of being a liberal in Malaysia is still... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Quote-unquote yeah, yeah. bad. So most people who have this belief, they're still embarrassed in a way. Or afraid of social judgment. Uh, we're not talking about social liberalism. Right, people who are okay with you know Muslims drinking or not wearing hijab and things like that, you know, being you know, uh, not liberal in that sense. Yeah. We're talking about being politically liberal. Like you're okay with a politician 
who is pro LGBT rights and things like that, but at the same time does not want to give access to public housing to the poorest or something like that. You know, because the the poor still have to kind of pay for whatever it, you know, for public infrastructure. A liberal politician would also be okay with like privatizing um, public healthcare, public education, and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every, they do everything they can to have a small government. But at the right. same time, they would do everything they can also to be very involved in businesses. We're, we're talking about liberalism in the political economy sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Not in the sense of social... Like, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm still curious. So what do you mean by embarrassment here then? Because I don't subscribe to that political belief that all all governments may. I actually believe in bureaucracy. I'm just questioning what kind of bureaucrats do we have. Oh, I see. I see what you mean now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I am okay with government. Like, strong government, but what kind of strong government? It's the opposite of what libertarian politicians would want you to, to say, which we will say, oh, let's privatize education let's privatize healthcare and things like that and essentially the the father of neoliberal malaysia was Mahdi. he was the one who privatized our healthcare our our um, water our electricity and things like that and it it's uh, mind boggling that we don't remember all these things can you imagine private higher education did not even exist before 1997 until he said okay to have private higher education uh, institutions. And then the next, the following year, uh, basically the student loan entity in Malaysia, where the government provide uh, student loans for people to enroll in higher education institutions, that's where they get most of their funding from. It's essentially diverting public money into private hands. The student loan is being charged by private higher education institutions at exorbitant amounts of money. We're talking about like 10, 15,000 per semester when public institutions only pay like 500 to 2,000 million. The, the gap is huge. And because of that policy, we have been, you know, the young people have been struggling because we don't have enough, we are not earning enough to pay back the loans, student loan debt. That was a result of the liberalization of higher education in Malaysia. And, you know, that's what I meant by embarrassment. <laughs> Okay. So to be a polit- uh, to be a liberal politician is actually not a good thing, not in the social mm-hmm. sense. I'm talking about the political economy sense. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, and, and 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 Malaysians don't make that distinction, right? So I think most people they would, now they don't make that yeah, distinction. Make, yeah, they just like a liberal, like oh, an atheist or free thinker or yeah. someone who <laughs> or LGBT rights and things like that. But it's not just even that. when you say like oh, I'm not a lib, uh, I'm not a like a liberal person and yeah, then yeah, like, yeah. what uh, because the discourse is not up to that level yet people are not talking to that level of distinction yet between the different forms of liberalism even feminism there are so many forms of feminism but right now it's still very surface like if you're a feminist you're automatically liberal which is not i mean i get it i understand where you're where that is coming from but that's not actually correct yeah I want to follow you guys back on Twitter. You need to kiss me. I don't have Twitter. I don't have Twitter. We just talk you on Google. We just check you out from Google. (laughs) Like, (laughs) we don't have Twitter accounts. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's so 
funny because liberals in Malaysia, they don't actually invite people of different opinions to talk to on forum. They usually invite people who think the same. I feel like I mean, most liberals I feel, everywhere. I feel like as I feel yeah. like here as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is like disappointing. Like it's liberals everywhere. You're right. I agree. Yes. So that's one of the things that that the, the, we criticize them for. Like if you are you call yourself a liberal, why is it that you only listen to one point of view and not not look at the diverse opinions that are available? Yeah. So, and if you disagree, then you you'll be cancelled, especially like on internet. Correct. How is cancel culture in Malaysia? I Have you I, been canceled? I find it, I, yeah, I find it very distasteful. Mm-hmm. I honestly feel like even if this person has committed a horrible crime, for example, shouldn't we talk? Shouldn't we be talking about rehabilitation instead of punishment? Because whatever punishment and this person is getting is already punishment already. We are already talking about that, right? But retribution does not only mean punishment. It also means correction, because anybody you put anybody in that kind of situation, you don't know what you will do. You know, if you are put in a situation where you have to commit a crime in order to save your life, how would you reconcile that? You know, the the justice system does not reflect that. I'm not talking about corruption cases here. I'm talking about you know the very packed prisons that we have, um, detention with the detaining children, we're detaining people who don't have, you know, the right documentations when they could just easily be, you know, they don't have any intention of harm. Or victimless crime, like selling marijuana. These are all victimless crimes. You know, the legal system still does not reflect the severity of what is even considered crime. Suicide is is criminal offense. Even for attempted suicide, you'll be considered a criminal. Oh my God. Um, so like it's not <laughs> it's not black and white, yeah. I'm just I'm just still shocked by what oh, you just what? said. If you are suicidal, yeah. you're basically criminal. But that was like very private in a way. Yeah, so that's why they're telling people like if you're if you if you know people who are attempting suicide, do not go to the police because the police will charge you with a criminal offense. <laughs> So you don't you have this culture where you are like you you are afraid of the people who are supposed to take care of you, and there is no oversight over the police. Uh, we still don't investigate like you know properly. Uh, we still don't have a a body to independently investigate death in custody. So if there is a death in custody, the police will investigate themselves. And then declare that it was an accident or whatever. But you know, in terms of verification, how can you trust uh, a body with no uh, independent accountability? But it makes it easier for people to harm each other. No, I'm just more interested in how I feel like, in terms of reclaiming our vote, our power, our political power, the existence of being a woman exemplifies that that dynamic with the state the the state always wants something from you they want your votes they want your taxes they want your labor you know to drive the country's economy and productivity and things like that they don't want you to be seen just like how society does not want women to be seen but they want the labor of women to get things going 
So we're drawing from that, right? I mean, me, of course, as an individual, I can't, I can only do it for myself. But collectively, if we are to withdraw our support to the state, they will have no choice but to listen. If we stop voting, for example, if we don't vote into this system that, you know, between the two horrible choices that we have, they will have no choice but to either feel better candidates or just don't give legitimacy to the system whatsoever. So that's how I see politics from a radical feminist point of view. Whether or not it is the correct view, of course, that is up to debate. But that's how I see it, you know? Like, my female authority is me being who I am, right? As women, you are told how to behave, what to wear, what, how to look like, what to say. And when you cannot be controlled, that's when the state gets afraid of you instead of the other way around. So the entire existence of women is actually very political in that sense, where the moment you say no, you create that boundary, either with you or other and other people, or with you and the state. Right? The state wants me to not talk about my experience as a Muslim woman in Malaysia, for example. And the only way out of that is to actually do the opposite. Just like how public university, the International Islamic University of Malaysia, being an Islamic university, told the, all the women students that you cannot uh, not wear hijab on campus. The only way to overrule that is to not wear the hijab, is to go against the rule. I'm actually a proponent of civil disobedience like that. Like, we need more of it. Yeah, I agree. In the current climate, yeah. Of course, non-violent, you know, non-violent uh, civil disobedience. You don't necessarily have to go to the streets all the time. How are you going to the streets anyway in this, in this pandemic, right? But there are other ways of protest. In the, in the coming election, protest voting might actually be popular again because people have no other way to protest. They can't go to the streets. They can't hunger strike or whatever it is. They can't go to parliament. Even parliamentarians don't want to go to parliament. <laughs> How are we protesting that? You, you feel like the, the next election, people are going to vote none of the above again so as, a, as a sign of protest? Yeah, so we don't have the none of the above or the nota vote. Actually, that was considered as a campaign, as an advocacy material. Like, Bursay actually advocated for nota. And then came the 14th general election, where they were heavily supporting the opposition at the time. So they, and the opposition was like against the nota vote. So they dropped it off their advocacy. That's why people get angry, you know, like you're very, you're not consistent. You actually listen to the politicians to tell you what to, what to do. And because we don't have nota, we have to undi rosa. We have to spoil the vote. That's the only way that we can express our disagreement with all the candidates. But if you can give us nota, then it will be counted because any accidental undi rosa will still be considered undi rosa, protest or not. So you cannot make the distinction, right? Currently, you cannot make the distinction between the accidental mm. damaged vote and the intentional damaged vote. So if you have nota, you can actually count the intentional damaged vote. So then you can tell whether or not this candidate is receiving the mandate of the people to represent the constituency in parliament. But we don't have that right now. So we have no choice but to go through 
with spoiled goods. And I really do think that it will be increasing because of what's been happening in Malaysia over the past three years. The the very opposition that became government, we were hoping that they would do things to improve the situation, but they're not. So people are angry. I'm smiling because I feel like most of the time people think, you know, that a new administration will change yeah. everything. And it turns out, you know, it's yeah. basically the same thing in different masks. Yeah. In different masks, yeah. And, 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 and you are always accused of being impatient, right? Like, why do you want change to happen so fast, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, you are not even asking for overnight change. You're asking for basic principles. Like, you are asking for political party that is not based on race. That's basic. The lowest bar, the lowest of the low, to not be a race-based party. Like, if you can't be that, then what else can you? What else can you? You can't even do that thing. How can you be trusted for for reforms that require even more value, commitment for change? I'm curious, actually, with this race and ethnicity thing. Like, so if someone is ethnically not Bumiputra, but they look Bumiputra, can they, like, lie about being Bumiputra? <laughs> well, if in your ID... Um, I mean, it's in your registration document. Mm. But actually, there's no, and there's no way to, to go around it or anything. You were going to say actually? Yeah, yeah. You, you can in certain situations. <laughs> like I mean, before the Gabungan, sorry, the Pesatuan Melayu Pulau Pinang were all mamaks. Mamaks are all Indian descent. They're not, they're not Malays. But they call themselves Pesatuan Melayu, the Malay Association, because of the advantage that they gain to be to be identified as Malay. Your race can be situational. In certain times when you are when it is more beneficial for you to be Malay than your actual ethnicity, then you can be Malay. You can put it in the form that you are Malay. I, I remember reading a story of this man. I think I think he was in Brooklyn. He he did some things committed crimes or like he was with a gang that committed a crime and he ran away and when he came back he had to get a new identity but he didn't have an ID he didn't have um, a passport he didn't he didn't have any identification document so what he did was take like some random person's birth certificate and he photocopied it like a hundred times until it faded and then he went to the notary and the person at the notary pretended like oh it's fine like I'll just notarize this birth certificate. And so he ended up like getting this new identity based on like some other person. So I was just, you know, thinking about, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and I was just thinking about how if circumstances are so for Bumiputra, like I think like most people want to just be Bumiputra so that they can get ease of access to to everything yeah of course if they do actually check then maybe you'll get into trouble mostly people get away with it i mean don't quote me on it i'm i'm curious about when the when the french attack in nice happened when the attack in nice happened i think i was reading that an Indonesian politician or public figure in indonesia actually supported 
the yeah. terrorist act and then from malaysia i believe it was the prime minister who also supported and then he took back his word and then it, it was something like that it was mahade mahade is saying that because of what the french did then the muslims actually have a right to kill the french but we don't do that mm. <laughs> apparently that makes it okay Yeah, it was Mahdi. I remember this was about last week. Yeah. Yeah. So when he said that, were were the people in Malaysia like, like, yo, what the fuck? So like, angry, yeah. Were people finally awake or? They they went what the fuck, but like not surprised. We are actually not surprised that this is coming from Mahdi. Mahdi still very much uh, believes in east versus west kind of thing, clash of civilization, Samuel Huntington kind of debate narrative mm. going on even though that thing is so outdated like very salafist like that not really i don't think he's doing it because he's a salafi he's not he's mm. just a politician he mm. just knows what to say to the right crowd he might not speak well with us the you know the more with, with people who are more on the left side of the political spectrum but it actually makes a lot of sense to the people that he is talking to mm. hardliners yeah yeah So, so there is there is an anti-West. Oh yeah, very. Ah. So the anti-West sentiment is very much rooted in the so-called anti-colonial kind of thing, but actually it's not. It is being branded as such, but it's not actually rooted in anti-colonialism. It's rooted in Malay supremacy because of the name Pesukan Tanah Melayu. It's translated as this is a Malay land, a land for the Malays. When in fact, in English, it's like it's totally different, right? It's just the Federation of Malay States. <laughs> it's it's not the, the the translation from English to Bahasa makes it so that the understanding of what Malaysia is is very different to people who speak the two different languages. And usually, liberals are more English speaking crowd, so they understand the concept of Tanah Melayu differently from the Bahasa speaking crowd. Which is why I do most of my activism in in Bahasa because I wanted to translate those things, you know, to say that this is not alien to us. I always say that all this coexistence, this cultural diversity that we see, is not modern. It is actually our tradition. It is literally what we inherit as people of the Nusantara because we are cosmopolitan, and so that kind of changes the perspective a little bit. If we have always been this way, then why are we not accepting people who are not Malays? Why are we not? Why are we only tolerating them? Because mm-hmm. that, that's a narrative. Because they want to be who they are, right? They want they want to be more Malay. They want to be more Muslim. They want to be as Muslim, as Malay as possible. And then you, when you change the definition of what, what Malay is... But it's a bit contradictory to the idea of because you said there is still like adoration the people in Malaysia somehow adore the British or their ex-colonizer but at the same time is very against West right it's very like very, yes. oxymoron <laughs> yeah you're right and that is the nature of Mahade Mahade is full of paradoxes there's very even a book called Par- Paradoxes of Mahade <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've never read it, but there is. It's literally called the paradoxes of Mahadevism. So we're now going beyond the figure of Mahadev and go into what Mahadev represents. He represents that inconsistency. He re- he represents that contradictory 
great. And that is reflected in the Malay politics of the country. He's that influential. He is very influential. I We have questions about your book, Unveiling uh, Choice. But at the same time, we were thinking like, maybe we should make a separate episode about... Um, uh, about that because we are interested in like this the economics of making hijab a style and and everything and um i have a question about because my relatives mostly they are muslim and they're wearing hijab and they can't dye their hair but what perspective of makeup is that the same idea that you can't wear makeup or is it makeup is okay you're not supposed to attract attention to yourself. So if you're, I mean, if you're pretty, you attract attention. So, <laughs> and that's the idea behind the hijab, right? You're not, you're, you're supposed to divert attention away from you so that you don't attract men. So whatever it is, it could be makeup, anything that attracts attention to you, like jewelry uh, and things like that. They are not supposed to be encourage yeah yeah yeah. you can exist but you're not supposed to be seen but you're not supposed to take up too much space so the space you know especially the decision making spaces is supposed to be you know just reserved to the man so that's the restriction it's not just the makeup but of course again in our country of paradoxes we are okay with celebrities who are very very beautiful and very like attention grabbing which is nothing wrong with it per se but at the same time, we're also punishing girls who are attention-grabbing. So it's funny because, like, in Indonesia, um, I believe... They have even, like, a makeup line. Wardas. Or, so yeah. I, think, I think that makeup line came about because there were a lot of rumors about how most of these international makeup brands contain pig oil in their makeup. And so... Yeah. They made halal makeup brand, which doesn't yeah. have any pig oil. But then they started making a lot of other products. Like I think they made like Sharia toothpaste. Um, but then if you look at the ingredients, it's literally the same ingredients. And they made like Sharia shampoo. And like the, the shampoo bottle was like, oh, special shampoo for the women who wear hijab. But again, it's like, like, if you look at the ingredients, it's all the same. And even like, I don't know, I asked my friend about um, the makeup line, like if the ingredients are actually different. I haven't checked it myself, but she said it's like basically the same. So it's just, you know, again, it goes back to economics. And now they have like two ways. It's essentially Islamic capitalism at play where Islam is being used as the brand, as an image for marketing. So regardless of the industry it's not just the beauty industry you even have sharia banks and sharia uh, insurance you have sharia everything nowadays that i wouldn't even think about needing sharia compliance for like they are clothes they are even nail polish branded as sharia compliant nail polish <laughs> so it it really is about people being creative in this economic model where you are driven by profit. Whatever makes the profit goes. But do you think Arabization is good for the economy, especially for like Indonesia, Malaysia? The social impact of that political economic direction 
which is very profit driven is that they people don't really embody the spirit of islam right the values of islam brotherhood sisterhood uh you know very equal right like literally if you really follow islamic teachings you wouldn't even be hoarding wealth hoarding wealth is is against uh what the muhammad and the prophet muhammad was preaching for you're supposed to give your wealth away because it's not yours to keep to begin with so essentially it's not really about the embodiment of those values it's about making money in the end so that's the yeah. social impact society no longer remembers the social their social responsibility to their community because at the end of the day if the bottom line is not reflected in dollar sign it's not considered as an achievement like it's it doesn't get reflected in the gdp it doesn't get reflected into the into the overall revenue of the country then what's the point so society becomes very individualistic in that sense when in fact islam preaches the opposite of that islam preaches camaraderie and brotherhood and sisterhood and but capitalism wants you to be individualistic in order to go after what you want alone not about the community an art exhibition for example islamic art would that be profitable if that's not profitable there won't there won't be any money in it there won't be any focus on it but islamic everything else brings profit i i noticed that uh a lot of not a lot but a number of indonesian artists who and because i know them personally i know they're not muslim but then when they go abroad people put them in like the islam category or like oh, have yeah. them perform at the islamic center blah 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 do you see that happen a lot with malaysian artists too no i've never seen that happening really uh, yeah so like i mean i've i've known a couple okay. i mean a few like they're christian and catholic but then i think the host organizations abroad don't understand that Indonesia does not equal Islam so they just yeah. you know put them at the Islamic center or make them as part of this like Islamic exhibition or you know yeah yeah i mean if the subject matter of the art or the exhibition is related to Islam then i suppose you can it, it doesn't have to depend on your actual religious belief no Yeah yeah this one was it had nothing to do with islam it was just i think the ignorance of oh. people oh no you know just so because for example like there's this singapore based tech company called kula they offer like installment to pay for anything at zero interest because islam prohibits uh, usury or interest you cannot make money from money that means you cannot put interest on money and then count it as profit that's actually haram i mean the company is not founded by muslims the company is even run by non muslims but the product is very sharia compliant i would say because it has no interest on the loan <laughs> like you like let's say you want to have buy a handbag for $20 and you don't have the $20 right now so hula will pay that $20 and then you pay hula in like 4 months like $5 each month at zero interest and that is actually islamic like islamic banking products in general 
they actually have interest, although even though they don't call it interest in the agreement. So they will change the word in the akad and say that this is not interest. This is us buying back your property from you. So you buy a house for $100,000 and they, the bank will buy the house for you and then you buy it from the bank. So it's a transaction. It's not a loan, apparently. And then you pay extra on top of the $100,000 as a profit to the Islamic bank. Isn't that a loan on interest? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it, because the wording is different now, they, that's how they call it Sharia. But in fact, the practice is very much interest-based. That's the problem with a lot of things in this country, not and, and, and a lot of things in, in the rest of the world as well. When you say something, you're not actually doing it the way that you say that it is. Yeah, I I got pretty frustrated once because there's this US politician and she was talking about like, no, I don't think she was a politician. I think she was just a public figure. But I think in the process of basically standing up for Islam, she was, yeah. it, it seemed that she was proposing a Sharia society. Um, and she's saying, was in America, in the US. And she was saying about how, like, oh, you think Sharia society is so bad? Well, guess what? Sharia banks don't charge you any interest at all. So, guess what? Sharia is actually good. And I, and I was just like, please go live in Aceh if you want that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, you know, sometimes I just get really frustrated. I'm not um, actually, I don't even know that there's even a proper Islamic state. A proper Islamic state? Like, like, like purely, like, purely. No, like, what about the, Saudi? the states that call themselves Islamic state, they don't actually live by the principles and values of Islam. They're actually authoritarian mm-hmm. and very capitalist like liberal capitalist politics, when in fact, Islamic practices are very egalitarian, right? It, it mm. doesn't matter if you're white, black, or yellow. Mm. When you go to the Kaaba, you're all the same. When you go, you know, worship, when you go meet God, you're all the same, yeah. man, women. Mm. But in a lot of Islamic countries who call themselves Islamic countries, there's still that differences in social hierarchies. Islam would abolish all that, technically speaking. Mm-hmm. Like if, if we are really Muslims, uh, we wouldn't even be so adoring of our sultans. Like the way we adore and give homage to our sultans is as if like we're worshipping them. We When we meet them, it's literally called a sembah. So like you literally sembah your king to worship your king, which is actually against Islam. So I don't, <laughs> so yeah, you're, you're, you're right. It's funny. I think a lot of our systems is, is a mix of history and, and colonialism and, and even like ancient beliefs, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and it's so funny when white people see this part of the world is so mystical and paranormal and supernatural because of our existence with the supernatural. It's so casual. Like you talk about ghosts all the time right you talk about spirits you talk about um meeting your ancestors you know as if it's just a na- daily occurrence but of course you know from the perspective of of, of the west you're you're like <laughs> you're not right in the head 
when in fact it, it's a big part of our society like a lot of paranormal stuff is very popular among the among the Malay people they really believe in that yeah, yeah. we we wanted to do though. we wanted to do a Halloween podcast on Southeast Asian ghosts oh, so and like so, Southeast Asian spirits <laughs> because like compared to Anglo ghosts yeah. And all of these things, like, come on, Southeast Asian ghosts are like super scary, yep. and and I think like before Halloween, uh, Ruth and I went upstate, and then while we were going down um, to back to the city, Ruth was telling me all of these scary stories, and I'm just like, oh my god, I'm not gonna be able to sleep at night because, like, I I don't know, I think Southeast Asian ghosts just really scare me. Yeah, but the idea is not to be scared of them. Is to live with them. If you don't expel them, I know, I mean, but I'm I'm a I'm just like a scaredy cat. Like to think yeah, that yeah, yeah. we're surrounded by si gede si kecil si cantik. Yeah, we call all the mambangs and the, you know. It's a funny thing. Sorry, Ruth, you were saying something. No, I was. I just watched this uh, Netflix show called The Unsolved Mystery, and they have one episode on Japan. So after the tsunami in 2011, uh, no, 10, 11, mm. the last tsunami, the big one. In Japan, yeah, I think 2010. So apparently a lot of like taxi drivers, they got like customers who said like, oh, I want to go here, but it's very far. And then once they arrive, right. the, 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 the passengers are gone. So Oh They're, my god, oh my god, I'm alone, I'm alone at home. No, 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 it's it's a beautiful story. So all of these taxi drivers, because, you know, ghost is just part of their culture, right? So basically, they paid for the meter. So they were saying like, okay, um, we're going to pay for this ghost as long as like we can help, I don't know, yeah. like console their soul or to comfort them. So it's very beautiful, actually. It's not seen as a as an attack. Yeah, it's a it's a redirection. It's a, it's a, Southeast Asians in general are very spiritual. Uh, we have like in our sila in our martial arts, right? We ha- they are the spiritual elements of martial arts. Yeah. And those are the kind of things that just blows people's mind, you know. Like even blows my mind to be honest. With you. <laughs> I've never seen like a spirit or whatever, but I can feel them. They are always around. Yeah, and it's a it's a common thing uh to talk about in here you would think that it would be gone with this modern society right but actually no, it's yeah, like people are more fascinated yeah uh magic is also a big part of malaysian politics oh magic in what way yeah black, black magic black magic is a oh black oh. magic okay. oh yeah the same back home too yeah it's a very yeah. big part of politics in malaysia you have all the bomos yeah yeah the spiritual advisors of this voodoo doll yeah 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 you do <laughs> just like how trump has, has a spiritual leader the what's that woman the woman who was praying so hard for trump oh my god oh yeah that one like i wouldn't say because of our conservatism no we're not it's not big our spiritual beliefs has always been here It's not a matter of uh, conservative or liberal. You can't survive politics without magic. The question is, are you practicing white or black magic? Magic is always there. Our witches are different from the West witches, obviously. We have witches. It's very uncommon to talk about this, I know. (laughs) 
think it's like the conversation like completely shifted. <laughs> shifted, but it's related. We have this witch named Mona Fendi who was serving a number of politicians before she cut them out and then buried them in her basement, and <laughs> and that's how a lot of politicians uh, get their power. They go through black magic witches or black magic practitioners in order to gain some kind of position, wealth, and things like that. In terms of like the direction of my country is going, I feel like it doesn't have the right leadership yet. Our leadership is very circular, too circular, I feel. The progressive, I'm talking about the progressive leadership. they talking a lot about the science without talking about the, the, the meta of people. That, that lack of spirituality actually is against uh, our favor because it doesn't seem like a, I don't know, I don't know how to say it, but like, we are scared to be spiritual. We are scared to be seen as, you know, non-scientific. Yeah, we, our liberals are very, uh, you know, uh, atheism inclined. When in fact, you don't have to forego, you don't actually have to forego your religious beliefs or your spiritual beliefs in order to be scientific. You can still very much be a good scientist and a good explorer of knowledge, even with, you know, the talking about things that cannot be seen with the naked eye. Mm. Do you think a lot of Malaysians in your generation ag- would agree with you in oh, no. terms of this? <laughs> no? no, definitely not. <laughs> no, I it don't doesn't, think... that's the thing. You don't, it doesn't require agreement. You are not required to agree with people's spiritual beliefs, right? Whatever helps you to move forward, right? Because spirituality is healing and the country needs healing needs healing from colonization, needs healing from neoliberal developmentalism. It needs healing from a lot of things. And if spirituality can help with that, then why not? Even if it's not scientific. But there's no such leader yet in Malaysia. I think yeah, I don't, leader, think, yeah. I don't I think, think, you know, anywhere in the either. world, anywhere in the yeah, world, yeah. I feel like there, there still isn't one. I mean, I feel like... And this is me just thinking about like recent stuff here. Marianne Williamson, she was kind of spiritual, but then people belittled her and looked down on her saying that, oh, like she's just a witch doctor. Like what does she know about real politics, blah, blah, blah. Because she was talking about like a holistic life um, and everything. And yeah, yeah, I think I think there's this, honestly, I think there's a toxic part of liberal society that just I don't know how to say it like just like looks down and belittles yeah everything that they think isn't part of science advancement or yeah actually we're moving backwards in terms of yeah there are like texts you know, uh, our ancient texts that describe our very erotic poetry. We are very sensual society. Like Malay, Malay Dayang in the royal courtrooms could just go up to any man and say that you want to, you know, you want to be together and they just be together. No marital attachments whatsoever. And, and this is pretty common in the mm-hmm. Malay royal courts. And, and even like the queens and the princesses, uh, were, you know, were very 
in touch with their sexuality and we didn't demonize people of the fifth gender you know sorry of the third gender we have five different genders you know generally uh it's not like repressed like i like i've mentioned before we actually absorb patriarchy from colonialism Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because of our spiritual belief, because of our spiritual understanding that we are, the corporeal body is not permanent, then we understand people on the soul level. That's how we connect the soul to the universe. That means we connect the soul to nature. So we don't destroy nature. We live with it. But in the name of development, in the name of science, in the name of uh, modernity, we destroy nature in order to be modern. But we lose that connection, the soul connection to the earth, and that's why we have all these problems today. In fact, I would consider COVID nineteen as actually a spiritual warfare with the entire world. That we need to heal. We need to collectively heal ourselves, heal our relationship with nature. This is definitely a man-made disease because we're not healing, so the disease continues. Any disaster, natural or not, is a healing process. You are literally wiping people away. From existence in order to heal the, to heal the earth. Anyway, but this is very like philosophical, spiritual talk. So <laughs> this will not be acceptable in the you know in in our current political discourse. I think I I would say that I will be the only person I know who actually talks about like spirituality in a political sense like this. Because you talk about trade war you talk about like actual physical war you don't talk about yeah. spiritual warfare about yeah, information even back home yeah it's always talked about like behind the door you know it's always no, no, you don't talk about it openly right always, Are you yeah. Talk, yeah we don't talk it openly it's just like no. gossip and stuff, but, like, <laughs> of course they do yeah, yeah. <laughs> then you'll be labeled like you're crazy it's not craziness in the, in in that sense it's more like a different reality You know, this is the reality that we are currently facing in. But then there's a there's a different reality, a different dimension somewhere that we don't understand. Where this is all happening, and but that is where we need to go. Is there is there some kind of resistance from the Sabah Sarawak people who hmm. I believe are more like they're more like indigenous tribes, right? And so, is there a form of resisting all of these like technological advancements because they do want to be connected to the land um, right. and live this spiritual holistic life? Um, no, they're not, and this is not just for Sabah Sarawak. But millennials in general are not against technology. As much as we want to be living modern lifestyle as defined by today's society, connecting to nature does not necessarily have to come with rejecting technology advancement. In fact, technology advancement is supposed to help us to connect better with nature. So, I no, there's no rejection of technology. I don't think so. In fact, technology is wanted, just not in the way that destroys land and nature. We can build without destroying the biodiversity of our land. We just don't want to. Political will is lacking in terms of uh, redirecting our infrastructure development towards a more ecologically sustainable model. Singapore. Call themselves a biophilic country. You 
are supposed to build with nature, not against it. So they call this like biophilic cities. So you want you that's where the discourse is happening, where you want to build smart cities that are sustainable by being biophilic. The cities have to attract nature. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm smiling because I, I feel guess like they have to. Singapore, Singapore has nature. Like what? <laughs> Very little compared to you know, I guess yeah. Malaysia and Indonesia. Well, we have a lot of spaces to build, but we are so concentrated on Kuala Lumpur. Like all the development are so concentrated in Kuala Lumpur, we're not diverting. That's why all the traffic are here. So like people are stressed out living in the city, and the trend. The trend with my current generation is to go back to farming. Mm. We are going back to agriculture. Young entrepreneurs, yeah. People in their 30s and, you know, people in their 40s, they are doing that. Right now, after a whole career in, in corporate, they go back mm. to nature, yeah. There's this misconception in... I don't know if it's a misconception, but in Indonesia, there's a lot of like animosity towards Malaysia. I don't know. It's it's like it's like really stupid drama, but like a lot of people are like, oh, you know, Malaysia try to what is it like? They try to steal like batik or cendol or tempe or whatever. Does that kind of sentiment also exist in Malaysia towards Indonesia? Um. Generally, I don't think so. I think it's a narrative that is sensationalized by the media to kind of highlight our differences instead of instead of properly highlighting our shared history. Our shared history and shared cultural are not just based on clothing or food. It's also like shared political history because we were also colonized around the same time and we were supposed to be independent together. And then Sukarno kind of just went ahead and declared independence for Indonesia ahead of Malaya. Yeah, because he was kidnapped. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what happened if he wasn't kidnapped. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of the, those things are, are not in the memory of young Malaysians. And so we kind of lost that understanding or that sense of camaraderie. Because I feel like today's relationship is so based on like superficial things. Like our pate and food. And I'm like, yeah, and... So we have similar style of clothing and, and cooking. But what about our sense of regional brotherhood or regional mm. sisterhood as people of the Nusantara, not just as people of Malaysia, Indonesia, right? Because then you also have Singapore in the picture and certain parts of the Philippines who also identify as Malay or, you know, at the very least, identify as people of the Malay archipelago. And maybe because of the lack of depth of the media. Like the media lacks that depth because, I mean, it's really not, their job per se. I mean, academics, you know, usually are at the front line of this endeavor. But at the same time, academics don't necessarily make it easy for the masses to understand. So you don't expect journalists or people who work in the media to read pages and pages of, you know, cultural history of Malaysia and Indonesia. They don't have time for that. They have to, you know, they have to the deadlines in order to meet that kind of death. So these kind of sensationalized superficial warfare between Malaysia and Indonesia as countries and is really something made up to me lah. to me it looks that way because I totally do not see Indonesia in that sense and people around me also don't see Indonesia in that sense and I know my Indonesian friends also don't see Malaysia in that sense as well but what about Hambalat? 
or something that the area that we are still fighting for oh you mean like oh, a geographical that... location yeah yeah in borneo and kalimantan ah, okay, no okay, okay. ambalat ambalat is like ah. uh between Sabah and mm. North Kalimantan. Mm. It's always like that. I mean, I have no expertise in that, but looking at the way Malaysians behave, can, you know, we can get quite territorial. Yeah. Looking at the way Indonesian behave, I would say the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When it's right, the land doesn't really belong to humans. You know? Land belongs to yeah. land. Mm-hmm. We don't own it. Like the, the belief of the indigenous people is that you cannot make money out of something you don't create. You don't create land, you don't create air, you don't create water. So this commodification of natural resources is actually foreign to this part of the world. And it was inherited because of our colonial history. And, it were, and now we are fighting over it. <laughs> Instead of thinking, why are we fighting over land and natural resources? But maybe also that's the way of thinking how to make money yeah. that is inherited by the, the colonial. Thinking how to compete like, with because, the West. Yeah, and be- maybe because we're like, this is what we have. Yeah. And we're so rich in it, like oil, spices, and why not yeah. exploit you know, it? Exploit it more, even. But Yeah, the logic of commodifying... Uh, natural resources is a colonial logic here in this part of the world. I mean, even so, like, even so, our ter- Malaysia's territorial dispute is not just with Indonesia, sometimes also with the Philippines over certain parts of Sabah. I don't know. It, to me, personally, it's not worth the hatred. And, <laughs> um, yeah, my point being, no, we don't really see it that way. I think that is a very superficial way of looking at things. In fact, the media is so skewed that when I first started going to Indonesia the first time, you know, a few years ago, my family actually asked me, like, how come there are rich people in Indonesia? And I remember telling them, you do realize that living in Jakarta is more expensive than Kuala Lumpur. Oh, because media perpetuates the stereotype that Indonesians are poor. Exactly. And the Indonesians in Malaysia don't exactly look like they have money. So the Indonesians that they come into contact with are, are the, you know, and, but they don't consider volume, you see. There's over 300 million Indonesians. They don't all look the same. Even if 10% are middle class, that's more than the population of Malaysia already. So, <laughs> so yeah, so that, that, that misconception is there definitely and it's perpetuated by the media. Here at Sugar Nutmeg, we encourage you to dig deeper and ask more questions about the topics we talked about. We want to thank Mariam again for sharing her insights and wisdom with us. We can't wait to have Mariam on our podcast again in the future to talk about her book, Unveiling Choice. Keep listening to Sugar Nutmeg. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening. And until our next feast, this is Ruth. And this is Alexandra. Alexandra.